Tonight's Bible reading is Judges 7, verses 1 to 25, and it can be found on page 194 of the Pew Bibles, also up on the screen. Judges 7. So Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and his army, got up early and went as far as the spring of Harod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they save themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their, warm, with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, With these 300 men I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon co collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home. But he kept the 300 men with him. The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. That night the Lord said, Get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I have given you, the victory, given you victory over them. But if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. So Gideon took Pura and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies of Midian, of Midian, Emelech, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in my dream a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. His companion answered, Your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Josh, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. Then he said to them, Keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too, all around the entire camp, and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. 
Suddenly they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to places as far, as, as far away as Beth Shitta, near Zesera, and to the border of Abel-Malo, near Tabith. Then Gideon sent for the warriors of Naphtali, as Asher and Manasseh, who joined in chasing the army of Midian. Gideon also sent messages throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down to attack the Midianites. Cut them off at the shallow crossings of the Jordan River at Beth Bara. So all the men of Ephraim did as they were told. They captured Arab and Zeb and two Midianite commanders, killing Arab at the rock of Arab and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb, and they continued to chase the Midianites. Afterward, the Israelites brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who is by the Jordan River. Let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you for the confidence we can have in your holy word, and we pray tonight that you would speak to us so that we would understand more of how you lead us and how you love us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not really sure when or how it happened, but from a young age, I've always been excited about the opportunity to lead. Uh, maybe it was the way that my parents or grandparents brought me up, or maybe something I absorbed in my schooling, perhaps, or, or just the way that God's wired me. I don't know, but I've always uh, tried to take up the opportunity to lead whenever I was given the opportunity. I wonder if you think that way. I wonder if you've embraced the opportunity that you've been given to lead others. Or maybe you think you're perhaps a better team player than a captain, a better Indian than a chief, or well, whatever it is. God has used us and will use us all in different ways. He has, however, used leaders throughout history to bring about significant changes at different times. Positively, we have leaders like Wilberforce and Lincoln or Gandhi. Negatively, we've got people like Stalin and Hitler and Mao Zedong. And whenever you have a group of people to come together wanting change, generally speaking, there's going to be a person who's going to lead that change. Even if it's a grassroots kind of thing, they will say, we need someone to steer us, to direct us, to lead us. And throughout the Bible, we see that God uses leaders to lead his people. God uses leaders to lead his people. So we've got people like Moses, we've got people like David, we've got people like the Apostle Paul, a whole lot of others as well, including this man, Gideon. Now you might have heard the name Gideon before, maybe because that's the name that goes on the front of all the Bibles in our hospitals and in our hotel rooms in the top drawer or even handed out at school. So there's been a movement in the last 150 years to, to get these Bibles out everywhere. And I think they're called Gideon Bibles because of the inspiration that Gideon was to help people trust in God, even though it seemed hard to do so. 
And so that was an inspiration to a whole lot of travelling salesmen to, to come together and to start giving away Bibles and putting them in their motel rooms and so forth. Gideon was a great leader and through his faith he led his people to a great victory. But sadly he was also a leader who overreached in his leadership and he showed arrogance and vindictiveness and that is something we're also going to see later on. Today we're looking at chapters 6 and 7 and 8 of the Old Testament book of Judges and we're going to see the rise and the fall of Gideon. But most importantly, we'll see how God leads his people when they are in most need of being led out of trouble. Begins in the same way as the other bits of Judges. It's very familiar. It's kind of Groundhog Day. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. Not again. Yep. And so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. Forty years of peace. And then God's people rebelled against him and so the evil Midianites ruled them. And it was horrible. Really horrible. Read, read this, verses 2 and onwards. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted all their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek and the peoples of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land, destroying crops as far away as Gaza. And they left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle and donkeys. Horrible. Horrible. And because of this, verse 6, Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And so then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. The judges cycle goes around again. Can you see that? Cry out to help. How is God going to answer them? Well, he answers their cry with a rebuke. He answers them with a rebuke. It's a hard word from God to them. Verses 7 to 10. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites, someone who speaks the word of God to them. What does he say? He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. Remember? I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. Remember? I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. Do you remember? I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. Remember? But you've not listened to me. God's response to them was not to just leave them alone, but he rebuked them. Now, I don't know if they liked that word from God. It might have been a little bit painful to hear that. But it was the hard word they needed. You know, sometimes the greatest act of love from a friend is a word of rebuke. See, friends show us love when they rebuke us. Friends show us love when they rebuke us. That's the consistent message of Proverbs, like for example, Proverbs 25 12, there's lots of them. It says, To one who listens, valid criticism or rebuke is like a gold earring or other gold jewelry. It's really, really valuable. You may not wear jewelry, that's okay, but it's something of great value to you when someone criticizes, valid criticism. 
or especially this one from Proverbs 3.11. My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. The Lord still loved them. And so that's why he told them off. It's, he's like saying, I love you, but how could you be so stupid to forget all the good stuff I did for you? Think about the exodus. How could you walk, again, walk away from me again and again? Well, after that, the Lord sent them an angel. Verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. This is to Gideon. And he said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Gideon is a guy who suddenly appears in this part of the Bible and the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, you are a hero. The Lord is with you. In a sense, the angel gives Gideon the opportunity to lead. He says, you are going to be the leader. You are going to be the hero. How would you feel in that situation? It's been years of darkness. The place is in a mess. And an angel arrives and says, you're a hero. The Lord is with you. I reckon I'd go, yeah, times are going to change. Thank you for choosing me to do this. This is going to be awesome. But Gideon said, verse 13, Sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Show us the miracles. Don't call me a hero. Show us the miracles. He doesn't say thank you. He complains. He talks about the hardships and he questions the goodness of God. You know, when, when things are really tough in our lives, this is a response we can sometimes have to God. It's really hard right now. Lord, are you really kind? Do you really love me? Are you really gentle and, and are you really the one who saves? Because right now I feel like you are dragging me through the coals. This is how Gideon responds at this time. Sometimes when these things happen, we can be angry with God and question his kindness. How would the angel reply? He might say, ha, huh, you question me, you're angry with me. I've done nothing wrong. You're the one, you and your people, ah, smite you. You know, it doesn't do that. Instead, the Lord turned, verse 14, to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. This guy's patient, right? But the Lord, but the, the but Gideon questions the Lord again. He says, verse 15, but Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clans is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. Basically, in all of this, Gideon doubts his own ability. He doubts his own ability. He's the least of the least. He's kind of in the bottom team of the whole ladder. And he is the weakest player on the team. And he's saying, you want me to be the leader? You know, don't you get us? Don't you know who I am? Why me? This is not something that's uncommon in the Bible. Does it sort of remind you of some other times? You know, Moses said a similar thing. He says, you know, I'm pretty poor at this public speaking stuff, Lord. You want me to go and do that? 
or Isaiah is sent by the Lord, you know, go to, he says, me, I'm a man of unclean lips and heart and all that stuff. It's like, me? And, and you know, if I was sort of inventing a religion, it'd be a, be a fun thing to do someday, uh, don't take it too seriously, uh, but if you're inventing a religion, you wouldn't get this guy from Nazareth, what good can come out of Nazareth, and then get him to be born in such a, a humble in stable and then make him go through life hated by the Jews and hated by the Romans and then crucified and then humiliated and all that. You're not going to, you don't need, who makes this stuff up? See, the Lord decided to use the humble to shame the proud and the strong and the wise. And it seems it might well happen again with Gideon. And so the Lord says in verse 16, don't worry, mate. That's the Aussie version. He says, I will be with you and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. There's more than one Midianite. But he's saying it's going to be that simple. Don't worry about it. That's my translation. Don't worry about it, mate. Now, how would you feel if that was the Lord speaking to you? I'd be pretty encouraged, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd say, all right, we've had this moment. I, I'm in, okay? Let's do it. But what did Gideon do? Verse 17, he says, okay, well, if you're really going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it's really the Lord speaking to me. But don't go away. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. And the Lord said, I'll stay here till you return. So Gideon didn't trust what was happening. Gideon demanded a supernatural sign. He wanted something really spectacular to prove to him that this was really, really true. As if an angel talking to you wasn't enough. Anyway, Gideon, there's a reason he's the... Anyway, uh, he wanted a sign. He really wanted a sign. That's what they wanted of Jesus too. Show us a sign. It's like, do you need any more signs than me? Didn't work so well for him. What's going to happen now? Gideon goes home, cooks up some meat and some unleavened bread, brings it back. The angel says, pour it out on a rock. And then, verse 21, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with the tip of his staff in his hand and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all that he brought and the angel of the Lord disappeared. It's like, whoa, all right, that's pretty spectacular. And Gideon realises that what has happened here is it's basically just like a burnt offering before the Lord of the tabernacle. And he thinks... Hang on a second, maybe I've actually been playing with fire, if you excuse the pun. You see, he realises that he's done something stupid. In says, verse 22, he realises that it was the angel of the Lord. He said, oh, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. I've been in the presence of the Lord. And I've tested him a few times too. That's not so good. And, and then the Lord replies, verse 23, it's all right. I love that translation. It's all right, the Lord replies. Do not be afraid. You will not die. How patient is the Lord with Gideon? Well, it doesn't stop. But the Lord right here, he says, do not be afraid. The Lord tells Gideon, do not be afraid. You remember a time when Jesus freaked out the disciples? He's walking on water and they, go, they think they've seen a ghost. And he says, don't be afraid. It's the same thing then. Don't be afraid. 
you come into the presence of the Lord, you see something amazing. You say, do not be afraid. So what happens next? Well, Gideon builds an altar to the Lord. It's what the people of God should have done, except they were building these stupid altars to a stupid God. They should have been building it to the real God, the one who showed them how to, the one who brought them out of Egypt. And so he does that. You know, it's hard to work out why people would turn away from such a good thing. You know, you get these kids who grow up in Christian families where mum and dad love Jesus. And they share the love of Jesus with them. They show them this wonderful family and they show them what it means to have forgiveness. When, when the dad's an idiot, I'm talking about my family, when the dad's an idiot and he says sorry to the wife and the wife says, yeah, I forgive you and the kids forgive them. And, and they're kind of that, that family that is, you know, it's, it's bumpy along the way. But you know that it is centred and grounded on the Lord Jesus. That it is a house that is built on the rock. And then these kids walk away, they grow up, and they say, I'm going to walk away from the Lord Jesus. You think, what the heck are you doing? You've tasted and seen how good the Lord is. How could anything taste better than that? But people do. They turn away from the good to, to follow a fake. Maybe life just seems so good. Maybe it's all of the stuff that we see, whether it's on TV or Instagram or whatever, we see all the love of these things that are so beautiful and say, worship me, worship me, and eventually we do. And it breaks God's heart. See, idolatry is very similar to adultery. It's not like it's a zero-sum game that it doesn't hurt anybody's feelings. You worship the stuff you have rather than the one who made the stuff and you break God's heart. In all of this, there is no room to worship other gods. There's no room for worship to other gods. And so having built the right altar, the Lord now says to Gideon, it's time to do a little demolition. Check this out. Verse 25. That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal, that's the bad god, and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. That's another sort of religious kind of sign that's not got anything to do with God, Jesus, and the Bible. Then... Build an altar to the Lord your God, the right one, here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. And so Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded. But he did it as night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and all the people of the town. So you can imagine this kind of sneaking in with this bull. Shh, move, shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. And they go in, there's ten of them, and they're kind of smashing down the altar. And then they've got these Asherah poles, like, start a fire. Okay, kill the cow. Can you do it quietly? I don't know, we'll give it a go. All right, away we go. And they kill the, kill the bull, and on it goes, and whoop, stuff happens. And then that's the end of the night. Uh... When the people wake up in the morning, uh, when his dad sees what's happened, uh, how do they all feel? Well, it turns out that they want, all the crowds want Gideon's dad to kill Gideon. It's like, you need to kill this guy because he has destroyed the altar to our God, the Baal. And the Asherah poles were kind of fond of them. 
So what is what does Gideon's dad do? His dad's got to have a choice. Does he go with his son who's burnt down this stuff and put up a new altar? Or does he stick with the townspeople who are calling for his blood? Well, we read in verse, 20, verse 31, Joash, the dad, shouted to the mob that confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself. And destroy the one who broke down his altar. Basically, from that, they suddenly think that Gideon is awesome. They've gone, they've switched miraculously from thinking that Gideon is this altar wrecker to being the one who is now refocusing them on the true and living God. And so Gideon goes from zero to hero. In this very moment where you could see him being lynched by the mob, he is suddenly lifted up and considered to be the new leader of God's people, which is great because right at this moment, they really, really need a leader. Verse 33, soon afterwards, the armies of bad ones, bad armies, Midian, Amalek and the people of the east, they formed an alliance against Israel and they crossed the Jordan camping in the valley of Jezreel. That sounds pretty ominous. This is kind of a coalition of the anti-Israelites over there and they all get together and they come. It's like, this is bad. So what do they do? Well, they get together, but something happens. Verse 34, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. He blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, and the men of the clan of Abiezer came to him. It's suddenly like he realizes this is his moment. And so the, that clan comes, other clans as well. And you think, here we go. It's ready to happen. And so Gideon then goes in and he leads the army and hooray. Well, not quite. Then Gideon said to God, if you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. Like, Gideon, what on earth are you doing? Prove it to me this way. I'll put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet, with dew in the morning, but the ground's dry, then I'll know that you're going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. It's like, Gideon, what more evidence do you really need? So he, so he goes and gets his lamb wool sheepskin cover and sticks it on the ground. And he says, if it is wet, but everything else is dry, then I know that this is a real thing. And that happens. All right, so he's ready to fight his battle. <laughs> no. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, oh, please don't be angry with me, <laughs> but let me make one more request because I don't believe you yet, God. Let me use the fleece for one more test. This time, let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it is wet with dew. You could think God's up there thinking, Gideon, why on earth did I pick Gideon? There are, really, there are some sharp people in my people and I've got the bluntest axe out of the lot this guy far out anyway he gives him the answer he does it he answers both Gideon's requests for proof it's like Gideon get on with it dude come on you got to say that Gideon's pretty brave really to come to God and say show me again show me again one more time <laughs> just just a second I'm gonna get a video camera can you do it again it's like really but God in his Extreme kindness 
met him in his weakness and showed him that proof. Now, I wonder what proof you needed to believe in God. If you're a kid growing up in a Christian family and mum and dad have always loved Jesus, you think it, it just, it's, in, it's in your mother's milk, it's in the, the air you breathe, it's everywhere, and you've actually got to say, no, I don't believe that anymore, even though everyone around me does. For some people, you go through life having done nothing to do with God, Jesus, and the Bible, and then something happens and you think, wow, I suddenly believe it's true. And there are some of you in this room who have that kind of testimony. You say, yeah. Something has happened where you know that the God of the universe is really true. And you say, I follow him. I don't need any further evidence. The proof is there. So I haven't seen Jesus. I don't know what he looks like. I mean, he could look like these stained glass windows up here. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I haven't seen him. But I know he's true. I believe him. And, and, I, and you as well in that same situation are blessed for believing without seeing. It's an extra blessing. You think the disciples were blessed for believing in Jesus? Well, they got to see all these party tricks. We ain't seen none of them. We just have to believe what is written in the scriptures. And so Jesus can say of us in John 20, you believe, to the disciples, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those people in Jamboree in 2019 who believe without seeing me. You know, we are super blessed. Well, with all of this in mind, Gideon gets all his warriors together and they get ready for battle. It seems that he's now finally believes it. And this is the bit that Paul read out to us before. We've done one chapter, we've got two to go. You'll be pleased to know I'm going to put my foot on the floor and speed through it. Okay, we will have dinner before it's breakfast time. Uh, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you, you're ready to fight, great. You've got too many warriors with you. If I let... All of you fight the Midianites. The Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. It's kind of like backfired on Gideon. He's like, I want proof. I want proof. Okay, well, I'll prove you how strong I am. I am going to make you weaker so that you can see how strong I, the Lord, really am. He's going to make it very clear that the victory will be from God, not man. This victory will be clearly from God, not man. And so to get this sorted, what does he do? He says, Gideon, you need to send home the scaredy cats. He says, verse 3, Therefore tell the people, whoever's timid or afraid may leave this mountain and not go to battle. You can go home. And so 22,000 of them went home, <laughs> leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. I'd be at that point saying, Lord, really? I had 33,000. It was going all right. And 22,000 have said, I'm scared, I'm scared. Run away. It's like, this is not good. Two-thirds of the army ran away. Gideon was thinking, this is going to be sweet victory. No, not a problem. But it doesn't stop there. Oh, no, it doesn't stop there. Verse 4, but the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring. And I, the Lord, will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. Gideon's like, oh, I've got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> and so then the Lord gives Gideon a way to work out who's going to fight and who's going to go home. There you go, it's a test for you. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like a dog. But the other group put all those who just kneel down 
and drink with their mouths in the stream. I don't know why the Lord had that in mind, but anyway, it's, he's going to separate one group from the other. All right, that should be okay. What do you reckon? 10,000 people at worst, 50-50. That'll leave about 5,000, hopefully. Um, no. 300. The Lord God told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. Okay, you don't really need to get a calculator out to work out that 33,000 down to 300 is around about 99% going home. And now Gideon looks around and he says, I got 300 people. And they drink funny. You know? <laughs> it's got, uh, how, what am I going to do with this? How would you feel? You've been oppressed for seven years by these horrible people who keep raping and pillaging your land and now the Lord says, I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to send 99 out of 100 home. Gideon's human power evaporates. Like, like pouring some water on a hot road. Gone. He's got nothing. How do you reckon you'd sleep the night before if you were Gideon? I don't think I'd be sleeping. I'd be thinking, ah, oh, going to battle tomorrow with 300 people. What's 33,000? You don't worry about it. Off I go. I think I'd be, you know, be like the, a, a husband out, out of maternity ward. It's like pacing, you know, pacing, pacing. I'd be, that'd be me, I'd be terrified thinking I'm going down there and I'm going to get hammered. But that night, verse 9, the Lord said, Get up! Go down into the Midianite camp, for I've given you victory over them. That's good news. The Lord again says, don't worry about it. You're going to win. But just in case, verse 10, but if you're too afraid to attack, which you are, go down to the camp with Purah, right? listen to what the Midianites, the bad guys, are saying, and you'll be greatly encouraged. And then you'll be eager to attack. Go down and listen to what they're having in their little chats in the tents. The enemy. Sneak down there. See what they're, you know, get, gauge their temperature. So Gideon took Pura and he went down to the edge of the enemy camp. Go and listen. And as he listens, he hears someone over dis discussing a dream they had. Verse 14, his companion answered, Your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. These guys are quaking in their boots. They've had a dream saying they're going to lose. And finally, it seems that Gideon mans up. He gets his courage. He says, I'm going to fight and I'm going to do this. And so verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord and then he returned to the Israelite camp and he shouted, get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He gets it eventually. He is now convinced that he will be victorious. So what does he do? Well, verse 16, he gets the 300 men in three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. And as we heard in the Bible reading, they hold the candlelights, blow the horn, scream out, for the Lord and for Gideon. And then all these Midianites wake up, they are disorientated and they start killing each other and the ones who don't kill each other run off. With 300 people, 1%, we see that God has saved them. 
It is a mighty victory. And if you know, imagine, imagine uh, silly Gideon saying, you know, well, let me tell you about my victory. It's like, dude, 300 guys, you know, you, a couple of little, and a bit of you know, candles. It's like, serious? It's all the Lord. Start to finish. It's the Lord. And all good things come from the Lord for his glory. Anytime you want to sort of say, how good am I? Or how good is this? Or how good is our church? Or how good is my... Whatever, you insert that thing, it's for the Lord's glory. Well, we now move to the last chapter, and I'm going to race through it. I'm going to skip over 17 verses straight away. Basically, Gideon leaves the promised land to fight down, to, 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 to track down two leaders who are left from all of this. And he gets them, he captures them, he's face to face with them, and then... Gideon, verse 18, asked these two guys, Zeba and Zalmanah, the men you killed at Tabor, what were they like? And they said, just like you. They all had the look of a king's son. They were my brothers, the sons of my own mother, Gideon exclaimed. As surely as the Lord lives, I wouldn't kill you if you hadn't killed them. What's this all about? Well, you can read the chapter in more detail. But basically, Gideon has decided off his own bat, that he's going to track down these two guys and he is going to kill them for revenge. It's not like the Lord says, wake up, mate, go and track down these two people for I am... None of that. He gets up, he says, I want revenge. And so he tracks them down and he pursues these enemies for revenge. And he brutally and bravely executes them and everyone says, Gideon... You're like a king. We want you to be your king, uh, you to be our king. Uh, that sounds dodgy. Well, verse twenty-three, Gideon says, "I'm not going to rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you." Phew. Seems like Gideon has just snatched that really awkward situation out of the fire. But no. What is happening here is it shows that Gideon has really started to drift away from the Lord. He got the taste of revenge. He went in his own strength to make to finish his own business with this extra energy that the Lord gave him earlier on. He takes it in his own strength, thinking, oh, how good was I with the 300 men? And then they say, we want you to be king. He says, no, let's not do that. Oh, but while you're on, if you, if you want to do something, how about this, 24? I do have one request, Gideon says that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies being Ishmaelites all wore gold earrings. There you go. Gladly, they replied, they spread out a cloak and each one threw in a gold earring he had gathered from the plunder. And we read that they collected over 20 kilograms of gold earrings, which would be worth today over 1.2 million Australian dollars. That's a fair bit of cash right there. And with all that gold, we read that Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. What does he do, the great Gideon? He makes a gold object of worship. This is the time when you take your right hand and you hold it in front of you and you do this to your forehead. It's like, what are you doing? Hang on, I can think of another time just like that. Can you think of another time like that when God's people got together some gold stuff just after a great victory and they started to worship it? Can you think, well, what, what was it? Golden calf. 
Just like that. Oh, boy. Gideon made a bad mistake by taking revenge on those two commanders off his own bat. And now he's making a dumbest mistake by taking the gold gifts of his followers and turning them into an item of worship. And we see what happens, verse 27b. Soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshipping it. And it became a trap for Gideon and his family. Oh, Gideon. Gideon the Great. Gideon, the one who has led them into the cycle again. He finally leads the people astray, right back to where they were before. Uh, Gideon's a great guy. He's done some terrific things. He's a bit slower off the mark, but he, he's an amazing leader, isn't he, in so many ways. And the very last verse of these three chapters says in verse 28, this is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. That's the good news, isn't it? There was peace from 40 years from all of that. But, you know, the sins of Gideon will flow to the next generation. Come back next week and you will hear about a, a terrible degeneration that comes from Gideon's son. The tragic consequences of this sin. Ultimately, there's no perfect leader, is there? All the lead, many of the leaders of the Bible, well, pretty much all, seem to be stained in one way or another by sin. King David, Bathsheba, Gideon, all this stuff. The Apostle Peter, I will never disown you. Never, 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 never. In the end, there's only one leader who really got it all right. There's only one who really got it right. And he's talked about, not in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews where you've got this great honour list of all these great guys, including Gideon, of course. But after chapter 11 is chapter 12, and we see in verse 2, we do this by keeping our eyes, fix our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honour beside God's throne. Aren't we pleased that Jesus accepted the opportunity to lead us to grace and to glory? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Gideon and for the fact that he did trust you. Thank you for your patience with him. And thank you for your patience with us. That when we fail you, when we doubt you, that you are so gracious with us time and time again. And we pray, Father, that we would not be led into the same temptation as the people of old, the people of the time of Judges, who easily crept into idolatry. May our worth not be in what we own, but only in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.